curiosity not only killed the cat, it spawned a whole radio show. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Good evening, everybody. Welcome along to the Weekend Variety Wireless, the Sunday edition. It is the 11th of the 11th. A hundred years ago this day, uh, Armistice was called at long, merciful last. If you've been listening to the program over the last few weeks, well, we've been running it for seven uh, consecutive weeks. Jesus, make it stop. Glenn Harper, military historian from... Uh, Massey University has been walking us through the last weeks of World War One, week by week, and man, he's had some amazing stories, and the detail uh, for which he just has at the top of his head is great. That is actually up as a podcast already on the, on the um, News Hub site and uh, the Weekend Variety Wireless site, you can go directly there. Because we wanted to share the final episode with everybody this weekend as soon as we could. It will be broadcast in full at 10.30 this evening. Some of the stories, how it prepped Germany in a way, but the propaganda at the end, the German propaganda at the end of World War I kind of prepped people like, oh, there was a guy called Hitler recovering in hospital from a gas attack when he heard about armistice and the germans had a victory parade they marched home a beaten army but said no we weren't they actually are welcomed back by their own government who treats them as if they're a victorious army and actually allows them to have a victory parade in november 1918 of all things where their chancellor actually tells them welcome back you who return undefeated from the field of battle so uh, little wonder that the hostility is reserved for those who actually made the peace and signed the armistice and all those left-wing elements that were blamed for uh, germany's defeat and also on the, along the lines of the anniversary of Armistice, we're looking at the war poets this evening after 11 o'clock instead of a Outsiders with Gerard Hindmarsh. Uh, we've kept this in store. The war poets, Wilfred Owen, Siegfried Sassoon, Robert Graves, and Harry Ricketts knows a thing or two about these cats. And they um, literally brilliant and tell a story perhaps like nobody else can uh, regarding the experiences of World War One. It was Wilfred Owen who was killed in the last week of World War One, which is um, a hell of a thing all on its own. Also, we don't forget the dissidents, those who said, no, I don't want to fight. Archibald Baxter, the father of James K. Baxter, the dissident supporter, Mark Scott will have his say after the war poets. And one of the big problems now, and this is where the works of Archibald Baxter and his fellows is in danger of being lost, is this weird concentration of romanticism about Anzac Day now. You've got Māori television pushing it as if it's some sort of holy grail. No, there was massive refusal to join the armies. There were mass protests by Māori. They didn't want to have anything to do with it. Half of all, of all Kiwis polled didn't want to do with it. And now it's been uncritically held as a, as a sort of one of the cornerstones of our identity as a nation. The dissidents, Archibald Baxter et al. from World War One, 
That with Mark Scott around about the 11.30 mark this evening. That'll be late, but it'll be up on the weekend variety wireless as well. Oh, we've got a big famous scientist and documentary maker this evening, Brian Cox. He does heaps of stuff on TV about the world and how it works and the universe and everything. He's a real live particle physicist who does real science at the CERN laboratory, otherwise known as the Large Hadron Collider. He's up tonight as well. Science as a, as a profession, if you're a research scientist, is pretty much being wrong all the time. And then just now and again, it turns out that you're not wrong and you're delighted. He should be on Coronation Street. He should make some cameo. Just walk into the Rover's Return and talk about quantum entanglement or something along those lines. That would be marvellous. Uh, <laughs> oh, we've got a quantum entanglement um, cat this evening as well. Uh, a little bit later on this hour, we will salute somebody who's uh, got themselves a, a big fat grant from... Uh, the Marston Fund, it's about a million dollars. And it's this quantum stuff where it seems like magic. It's kind of crazy that you can have action at a distance faster than the speed of light. He'll explain it for a layperson. And he's got a big, broad German accent and sounds like a mad scientist, which is just perfect in my book. I also put to him, a lot of quantum stuff is adopted by spooky folk, like Deepak Chopra that say we're all connected and our consciousnesses are uh, all, oh, I don't know, woo words, really, because of quantum this and quantum that. What do you make of quantum abuse like that? So, are you allowed to say bullshit on the radio? I think you should say it again, if you like. <laughs> I think it's bullshit, yes. All righty. Time for grievance. What grievance number are we up to, I ask my technical producer, Saskia, next door. No, we well past 159. I think it's 169. 168 last week, that's right. We're up to 169, uh, my grievance. And Saskia, I don't know if you were able to actually speak to the, the public from in there, but you may want to, because here is my grievance. It's something I come across very rarely, but let's say I get crook with something, a flu or a cold, or I've got a something, a bellyache, and you make the mistake of actually telling someone that you've got a bellyache or you've got a flu. And my grievance, number 169, is so often the reply is, oh, I've had that. How many times do you say, you've got, I've got a disease, I want it to be all mine, and they say, oh, no, I've, I've, I've had that. And then they follow it up with, it's been going around. A lot of people have, have, have had it as well. And then... What's more, if that wasn't bad enough that you're not allowed your own disease in the way that you want to have it, they'll chip in some homespun advice on remedies and how to fix your problem. And it's probably this and it's come up with all these theories. Who the hell are you? Uh, you're not a medical doctor. You're not, you haven't got a lab coat on with a magnetic pass to get in the front door of a research institute. Stop telling me what I've got. I tell, I have actually done this because of the level of exasperation with people saying, oh, I've had that, to say, oh, yeah, I went to the doctor. It's AIDS. Just to put them off. It's Ebola. Diphtheria, meningococcal, you want it to be bloody spectacular to put them off. Saskia last week was spectacularly ill. There were some stunning emissions 
uh, over the desk and uh, had to be carried out on a stretcher. It looked like the Western Front for a moment or a special corner of the Western Front. Uh, Saskia, are you okay now? I am, Graham. You I are. Am. And can people hear you or just me? They can hear me. They can hear you. Great. <clears throat> That's great. I've had that. <laughs> um, did you get anyone saying, actually, that they... Oh, I've had that. It's going around. Do you get that when you, you get sick? I did indeed. So I had to go for the Ebola. How do they know that they've had that? They don't know what you're feeling like? Oh, no, I've had that. Oh, I know someone who's had that or people have had that. Anyway, that's grievance number 169. Mark Watson is our special guest today for Media Stick. Enfant Terrible from Radio, from radio Sport. Uh, most famous line, which gets repeated over and over again, was to Steve Hansen uh, after a loss. It was, apologise to me! Apologise to me! That's the most famous line. And you've had... Certainly not orchestrated, certainly not deliberate, certainly in the moment. I and it's felt... funny, 10 years of radio and I'm defined by that moment. Oh, just... I'm defined by that moment, Graham. Forget the wonderful interviews over the years. Uh, I'm defined by that one moment. Ask me about the freaking grey warbler. That's the thing. See? The grey warbler. That's all I'm defined by. The grey warbler. The grey warbler campaign of 2007 Brilliant. where it became bird of the year. Um, but I heard you working up to the apologise to me when I was listening to it live and it was a spectacular piece of radio. I didn't know whether to send in help or um, encourage you to carry on. I could actually see your point. You weren't happy with well, a performance no, I... of that... that wasn't up to par and it was a bit like, oh, these things happen, never mind. No, uh, m my whole point of view with the All Blacks is, like, yeah, we, we should win. I mean, Steve Hansen and our current coaches are the most resourced coaches in history. They have the ability to bastardise Super Rugby, cheapen it, pull players out. They've got 25 staff. Mm. You name it, they've got it. You're taking on Australia, who are probably in the worst... Uh, they don't have to take time off to practice, do they? That's their job. They do it every job, day. And they have a week off through injury, another week off through this and sabbaticals, and you name it, they have it. They lose to a woeful Australian team during an era of Australian rugby that is... It's at the lowest ebb it's ever been. Mm. And Steve Hansen comes out and says, oh, the sun will come up in the morning. Well, yeah. I'm sorry, the sun won't come up in the morning, Steve. You have, along with Steve Chu, turned New Zealanders from being rugby fans into all-black fans. Now, if that's the case and you want to get your way and you want to stop you want to stop Sir Gordon Titchens from having the best players to try and win Olympic Games gold medal because you want to beat an average Welsh team in June, mm. then you make sure you damn well win every test, Steve. And losing to the but Wallabies a team can't last win year. every test. They can, Graham. They can. And if they don't, you know, if they don't win, I get that. But Steve, come out and apologise to us. Say, hey, firstly, I would like to apologise to the people of New Zealand. I know that you must be hurting. Right. Zinzan Brooks said on the bus in 1993, heading to Twickenham, a test they did lose. And I, and I've heard this through Karma Ian Jones. He said, if we lose today, gentlemen, a nation mourns. Mm. Or most of a nation. There are some people yeah. who don't give a toss. Um, the, and, OK, I can see demanding an apology from Steve Hansen if you take your eye off the ball, given all those resources, you take the, the, your eye off the ball. But, um, but you can come up against a team that is particularly good either on the day or will beat you regularly. 
We had trouble beating Australia. Remember that Australian yeah, okay, team? So, they, you couldn't beat okay, them. So Put the, them on the park so, today. So the Stephen Larkham, so Sterling. So the question Johnny is, how good really is Steve Hansen as a coach? We're told he's the greatest coach of all time in history. Might suggest that. But as I said, Fred has there been a more resource? That's probably Mike Wall texting me. Yeah, that'll, that's it. I should always turn that phone off anyway. Um, you know, the most resourced team, it's like, well, Steve, we're only just getting the job done here, mate. We're taking on countries whose players are controlled by their clubs who are only released for a week prior to a test. Not three months, not two months. Mm, it's like the kangaroos. Don't get to have these early season, middle of the professional competition, all black camps. Mm. I mean, Joe Schmidt, given the same resource, the Irish coach, the New Zealander, given the same resource Steve Hansen has, would be as good as Hansen in charge of the All Blacks, possibly better, because I think he'd bring a new voice. OK. Uh, the All Blacks snuck through overnight in England, and we'll discuss that after the... I'll do a late... Can, can, can I just... I'll do a late and Smith. Can I, can I tease them? The message, no. the message is stale, Steve. The message is stale, Steve. We'll have more to say on this after the break. Life, the universe, and everything in between. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. The baby understands. Well, singer Fugle highs in the South. You're not on Twitter. Basically, it's a route to madness. Al-Qaeda is a lethally dangerous man. Mark Watson, Enfant Terrible of uh, Sport Radio, now on Radio Live this evening, anyway. Hey, hey Graham, can I just go back? You mentioned the war poets. I oh, do, vividly, am I going to regret you I'm, bringing no, you no, in? No, I remember vividly at school studying um, Siegfried Sassoon and oh. Wilfred Owen, because one glamorised war, didn't it? One showed very much the pity of war. Oh, they're both pretty... No, or were they both... They, they were both pretty uh, on the mark, kind I, of, this is what happened. I always remember the... Was it the poet Dulce et Decorum Est? Dulce et Decorum Est, that's a Wilfred Owen job, yeah. 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 Never forgotten that. No, it's it's kind of Latin for how sweet and noble it is to die for your country but and that's glorif- the title but, of... But that was glorifying war, wasn't it? No, no, no. He was being sarcastic. The was poem's it? real title is Yeah, Right. Like a two-year. It's funny though, isn't it? You know, Armistice Day, and my grandfather was gassed in World War One, and fortunately, um, you know, survived and came through, and um, you know, and obviously here oh. I am. But we haven't learned anything, have we? We still. I think we have. History is still amazed... repeating itself around the world, though. No, isn't it's not. It? History is still repeating itself, Graham. There are still Mark. wars going on. We have learnt nothing. Mark. We have learnt nothing. Mark, name a conflict today in which an army is fighting another one. This is the first time in human history you can't. Yeah, look, uh, yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, okay, we'll talk some boxing very shortly. That's not bad. No, no, but we still don't get... I sick. take round one. Yes, you do, actually. Knockout, like Jesse Ryder. Never before Martin. has poverty been so minimal. I'm not saying the poverty that is there is but, not okay. is it good. Whether, whether they're pushing buttons now to kill each other or holding guns and shooting guns at armies are actually going toe-to-toe Where? with the bayonets, Where? bayonets on. I mean, we still very rarely, you know, do we want to still sit around the table. There are still conflicts. You've only got to look at Syria. You've only got to look at what's looking to happen in the borders yeah. of Russia and some of these Baltic states. Um, and well, hell, you've only got to go back to Yugoslavia. Has we been used 20 years to, ago. What was the sort of war we've been used to, I, these are skirmishes. Okay, they're not fun, but don't forget, it's really diminished. It really has. It's quite remarkable. There should be a parade, but no one will have one. 
because no one wants to be too gleeful mm. for the suffering that is out there, and I can understand that. But I think it might be useful just to know where we are getting better at stuff. We can go downhill damn quick, but just to maybe on a positive note. I Not think. convinced. Not okay. convinced, Graham. All right. Uh, I think man's on, man, mankind's on this planet for two things, killing each other and keeping the species going. Mm. One cancelling out the other mm. to some extent. Um, although there are more than 7 billion of us, so I think I know which one's winning. Certainly. Uh, Dan Carlin is another podcaster that's done an amazing series on World War One. It's called Blueprint for Armageddon. Each podcast is around about, it can be three and three quarter hours. It can be six hours, it can be five hours. I think there are six parts to it and it is utterly compelling. Today's the day to give him a bit of a, a hats off and give you a heads up about him. Look him up if you're interested in this stuff. I think if you start on Dan Carlin, you will find it hard to drag yourself away. Uh, a little example of his work. One can't help but think of all the men in uniform, especially those in combat units at the front, who were just glad that they were going to have a future. And at the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, 11 a.m. November 11th, 1918, on many different fronts, soldiers greeted this moment, this agreed moment. It's a little strange when the war would end in advance. Historian, soldier, and politician John Buchan was there at one part of the front the minute the war ended. Here's what he wrote. Quote, at two minutes to 11, opposite the South African Brigade, at the easternmost point reached by the British armies, a German machine gunner, after firing off a belt without a pause, was seen to stand up, take off his helmet, bow, and then walk slowly to the rear. There came a second of expectant silence, and then a curious rippling sound, which observers far behind the front likened to the noise of a light wind. It was the sound of men cheering from the Vosges to the sea. End quote. The future may have been poisoned, but at least these people would be there to see it. November 11th will be celebrated after the war as Armistice Day and will be celebrated with a wide mix and range of emotions. Dan Carlin, Blueprint for Armageddon. It's a must-listen mm. for this sort of thing. Absolutely. He's great. All right. On to your specialist subject. This week you've been quoted. I've seen uh, Mark Watson, our, our guest, uh, in a sporting context, um, and primarily about that tragedy in a charity boxing event. What did you say? Oh, look, I was I was just asked to, I, by a reporter um, from media outlet to just give my thoughts on corporate boxing and charity boxing because I was involved in one against uh, cricketer Jesse Ryder um, some years back on a major fight as part of the undercard. And there's obviously been two recent deaths uh, through corporate fights. And so when you have two deaths, people start to ask questions about, you know, the safety side of it and whether or not, you know, morally, you know, morally should they go ahead. And I guess from my experiences, um, it's, it's a tough one because I must admit, 
I had no regrets in terms of taking the fight against Jesse Ryder. I knew I was going to get hammered. I knew I was going to get probably knocked out. And walking into that ring with the TV camera and everything in front of my face was terrifying. I'm not going to lie to you. You didn't get brain damage, though. No, but I, I... Maybe I was a little ignorant. Maybe I was a little naive. Maybe I didn't genuinely believe that I could could get hurt. Mm. Um, People do. But in hindsight, now, looking at what has happened... Yeah. ...and having two little kids, um, would I be as blasé about accepting that opportunity again? Uh, I'd probably think about it more, but I'd probably still do it. Mm. I'd probably still do it. Um, but, but, yeah, do they need to, you know... It's a dangerous thing. People need to know what they're getting into. This does happen in boxing. It's a very dangerous yeah. sport. Oh, I don't know. There are, well, the intent, there the, are a few deaths every year well, the in professional boxing, and if you want to add it to amateur and... Uh, other sort of boxing, um, it, it goes it goes well, way up. Well, well the, what you're trying to do in boxing is knock the other follower out, well, or the other person out. Or I mean, not that, get hit, actually. Well, that, that's hit, a major you're actually, part but of it. Primarily, it's about trying to knock the other person, knock well, the other person's block off. You know, people say, well, okay. No, so you, you don't, don't support, no, I disagree. You don't, no, but people say you don't support boxing, but you support rugby, you're a hypocrite, because look at, look at the concussions in rugby. I'm like, or yeah, as but Bob hang Jones on a minute. says, mountain climbing, and but, he's but, got yeah, a but point. But hang on a minute, there's no, but you don't, but the you're not trying to knock a person out mountain climbing. You're not trying to knock a person out playing. I'll rugby. tell you what, the mountain's trying to knock you out. I could do. I could be Bob Jones if you like. Ah, oh, for God's sake, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now you say the you disagree with me. Why do you disagree? I mean, so with many me. people Why do you get killed on mountain climbing. Nobody ever complains about Ed Hillary telling him to get off the mountain, do they? That's brilliant. They don't do that. That's brilliant. So. Uh, it, it's probably more dangerous. But come on, climbing. boxing is about trying to knock the opponent out. You don't agree with that? No. What's boxing to you? What's the intent? That, that, that could be part of it. It's trying to hit and not be hit and be better at the former, or be better at both than the oppo- than your opponent. But what's perfection in boxing? Perfection's knocking your opponent out, sure. Or not getting hit once. It's probably Floyd Mayweather mm. against almost anybody. Yeah. yeah. I don't I, like the guy, but I've just got to say he's yeah. probably the best I've ever seen pull on gloves. I, I, yeah, I, I just think if you are going to do those corporate fights, you need to make sure you're incredibly well-trained. I think that they need to bring the two fighters together at some point, even prior to the fight. Amateur boxers. So you boxers. can have a look at each other a little bit and you can maybe even do a sparring session, not necessarily with each other, but next to each other. And the bloke gets knocked out and hits the canvas, hits his head on the canvas and then dies through that mm. multiple mm. Um, uh, concussion. Mm. Um, What's the most terrifying thing you've ever done? I've got to say probably walking into the ring to take on Jesse Ryder, knowing oh, I was probably going to get knocked out. God. We'd probably have to be up there. Yeah. I don't know. No? Can't can't recall. Oh, trying to get past um, a line of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. It must have been about ten black power patched guys who wanted to beat me up. Why'd they want to beat you up, Graham? Because it was an initiation thing uh, where one of the young ones assaulted me in the toilet after I went and stole my sunglasses and then I went in to see, hey, this is basically a kid. And then he tried to beat me up in the toilets and I wasn't having it and pushed him away and I walked outside and uh-oh, here's this crescent of patched guys. And it was me and them, I had to get out and get past them. And I picked the fattest one and ran as hard as I could. Grabbed my leg, he did, and managed to pull me back, but I kicked and fought and managed to get away. Wow. Wow. I mean, that could have... We Ended not up be... not very well. Yeah. No. Terrifying. Where was that? 
It was in Albert Park. Really? Yeah. And, and what did they pick on you? Were you the only one there? No, or? no, because this person picked on me. For You know, this is how you yeah. start in on these things. You have to commit some sort of low-level crime, and then, you know, if you get caught, mm, they'll back wow. you up. And they were backing them up, and I was the one in the middle. Yeah, so there you go. I ha Where the hell were we, Mark? Is this how your show usually goes? <laughs> how am I doing oh, so no, far? I, I like to think I'm a modern-day Picasso. I'm a little sort of, you know, a little abstract. And I always said when I was on radio and stuff and doing some really quirky out these things, I said, look, people in 30 years' time will suddenly wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning, sit up in a sweat, talk around to their partners and go, I get him. I finally got him. I think I, I finally I, I got warm, where this I, guy's I, coming I from. I warmed to you. I warmed to you. I started <laughs> thinking, this is madness. Um, but... And again, you made a lot of good points. You don't have to agree with everybody all the time. Well, Even I if you don't like someone, I, people can you don't like can say really, really smart things a, a lot of the time. Well, well, my point of view with talkback radios: if you don't like an opinion, don't listen to talkback radio. Yes, I mean, that's, that's primarily. Yeah. Hey, we were going to, um, but we were going to. We were talking boxing, weren't we? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Earlier. Earlier. Now you've got an association with it. Yeah, yeah, I was brought up with boxing. Dad was the president of the Northland Boxing Association, and I, oh, I'm loath to bring this up, but I have to now. Um, very, very close friends of the family. Their son was killed in the ring, and when my father happened to be the mm. Northland Boxing Association president, and that's one of the most disgusting things to have to endure. <laughs> he had adopted Black Blue Book, the boxer. Yeah. He'd been knocked out and should not have been fighting within three weeks. They got him to, got him out of the country and he was fighting in New Caledonia and the Peter Gilbert Trophy is still fought for it, in it, Northland, it's, so it's there you go. It's interesting though, isn't it, because boxing and mixed martial arts get such a bad rap when it comes to, I guess, the brutality at sides of it. And as we've talked about, you know, people think a lot more, particularly with MMA, that it's just sort of mm. legalised prison violence. But isn't it funny, like in, in it. rugby, in rugby you get knocked out and these players are back out there a week later. Mm. Some of the players come back out on the field Ten minutes later. Yeah, it's just so hard to and, tell. And yet in sports like boxing, mixed martial arts, I mean, you've got doctors constantly there, but you actually have a mandatory three-week stand-down, don't you? No, no, you don't. You have an eight count. If you can get knocked down in a ring, you've got eight seconds, you know, one, two, you're on the ground. You're up fighting this guy who's just done this to you. Every molecule in your body is saying, don't get up, don't get up. Mm. And yet they do. That's less than three weeks. It's less than ten seconds. But, I mean, if the boxer is well and truly, surely, if the boxer, they call the fight out because a guy's lost his cognitive ability, he's lost his yeah. function, yeah. He, he gets a, he gets a three-week stand-down, though, doesn't he? That's right. Yeah. And I think rugby, oh, should, do, that, I I think. Think rugby should do the same thing. Okay. Um, hey, just... Uh, and I, I just want to add, in boxing, so many of the deaths that occur in boxing are people trying to make weight. Mm. And you're desperate to make weight. You dehydrate yourself. Taking, your, your blood gets yep. thick. You become... Um, and your brain more prone yeah. to damage. Yeah. Um, just going back to the All Blacks, did you watch that performance, Graham? I watched the highlights. Is the message getting stale? I don't know. I thought England really ramped it up and wanted to win that so much. I don't know. I don't really know. I mean, two you poor, tell us. Two poor performances against South Africa. Yeah. We lost the one in Wellington. We probably should have lost the one in South Africa. Was it a poor performance when we won just by one? It was awful. Mm -hmm. We were out of it for 70 minutes. Okay. We come back... 
you know, guys have had time off. We hear the rhetoric from Steve. He, Steve Hanson, he tells us how things need to be better. They're going to improve. We read the headlines during the week about this all-black team's going to go out and teach England a lesson, and yet it doesn't happen. Mm. Now, I believe that we do have the best players, and I believe we've got depth. So there's something just missing here. And Mr Hanson's been involved with this team since 2004, and I just wonder whether that same rhetoric is now just starting to sound a little bit like white noise, and we just need a fresh voice in there, Graham. Mm. That's not to say Steve Hanson's not a good coach, but Hamish Carter, great example, coached by Jack Ralston, very good coach up until 2000, didn't have a great Olympics. You know, 2002, changed coaches gets Chris Pallone. Now, Chris is a very good coach. A better coach than Jack Ralston? Probably not. Different. Mm. But it was a different voice. It was a different stimulation. It was a different way of doing things. And it just gave Hamish that little bit more invigoration. Mm. Okay. Uh, I want to chip in with a little thing about fake news, which is probably the words or phrase of 2017. Uh, BBC Trending is well worth a listen. Uh, it's available uh, for a download. And a little thing that you might find surprising about fake news from BBC Trending's programme from this week. Stories that people don't like or disagree with. It also encompasses satire or parody, which means no harm, but can still fool people. A moral panic had set in hard. It was everywhere. So much so that the founder of the world's largest social network, Facebook, vowed to tackle the issue of fake news. Mark Zuckerberg claimed his personal challenge for 2018 was to fix the social site and how it handles hate, abuse and fake news. He announced in January of this year that Facebook would be changing its newsfeed algorithm to prioritise content from friends, family and groups. And along with those changes came an ad campaign. From now on, Facebook will do more to keep you safe and protect your privacy. But for news organisations and publications, it was bad news because a lot of traffic comes from Facebook. With less prominence, some viral sites would quickly go out of business. And that meant trouble for someone like fake news writer Christopher Blair. What kind of trouble? Well, those changes on the platform meant the money he once used to make had more or less stopped. In the hour and a half we spent talking, we discussed his upbringing, his love of politics, and the transition from construction worker to fake news writer. We've heard the kind of headlines Christopher Blair writes. Clinton Foundation ship seized at port off Baltimore carrying drugs, guns, and sex slaves. Sasha and Malia Obama's biological father sues for paternity rights. But here's the thing. Christopher Blair is not who you think he is. I'm what's known as a liberal troll. My purpose online is to expose the, the modern American conservative. We get those people thrown off of Facebook. We do it a lot. Say what you want about me being a monster. I'm pretty proud of that. I've done more to combat fake news than any fact checker I know. So most people would think the people that write those things are the extreme conservative right or the alt-right, as they're smeared with. Um, he's a liberal blogger trying to expose the conservatives that are writing these articles. It's kind of bizarre, and I found it surprising. Oh, no, I, I'm just intrigued listening to it. I, I sort of probably want to go back and listen to the rest of it, and I do listen to a lot of the BBC world. Um, boy, but I'll just tell you, this whole sort of social media 
things like fake news, the, these words and these um, phrases. Well, we started that off is, that article, I think, quite nicely. A, a lot of it is it's a pejorative. Frequently it's used as a pejorative for something you don't like. Uh, you but, just say it's fake news. But it's amazing. So the fake news issue, what's the next issue that then crops up with this technology and the next, I don't know, buzzword or the mm. next buzz phrase and... I mean, can we ever control it? Can we ever stay on top of it? That's what I think is um, no. no. I don't think the answer I mean, is you, no. You hope common sense prevails at the end of the day that people are bright enough and smart enough to be able to separate the two. I think we're living in a state... I've become more and more convinced we're living in a state of flux of trying to figure out what this new world is and a new generation coming through, it won't be such a problem for them. We still can't... Fathom it. Fathom it or... We don't like living with it. Mm. And I think a new generation will learn how. Well, well, it's no different, isn't it? You know, my mother and I'm sure, you know, maybe your parents, Graham, but as simple as there are some things with a cell phone and some things with Netflix, my mother, who's 78, is absolutely terrified of this, yet it's quite common and it's quite mm. easily, it's mm. quite easy for us. Yet there are other things that scare the hell out of me, like you've just mentioned, that my daughter at seven years of age is just going to grow up and go, oh, Dad, it's so simple, it's mm. so easy. Oh, come on, you surely can be able to determine what this is versus what that is. Mm. But yet, at the moment, we can't. We've been, We're sort of trying to write the book that hopefully the next yeah. generation's going to end up reading. Yeah, and the, um, I suppose you could say the old school, or some people say the normies, um, uh, been spoon-fed news uh, their whole lives. And there have been f there's been fake news with them as well in the old days. It's not a new thing. People write have mad books and put them in libraries that aren't true. That's fake news as well. I just think we're in this bit of a hysterical flux about what's happening. Uh, but as long as there's media interest, as long as there's advertisers who still buy into clickbait, who still don't really care about whether what they're actually advertising on is whether it's morally right or morally wrong, there's always going to be a market for it. Mm. There's always going to be people out there exploiting it. There's always going to be people looking for a way to clip that ticket, make some money out of it. And, yeah, they will exploit, I guess, the lowest common denominator. Yeah. We're in the state of working it all out because it's a new world. Uh, Mark Watson, thanks very much for your points of view. Pleasure. And Graham, being in pleasure. for Media Stick this week. All the best. Thank you. And we'll Check us out, by the way. Just writing some opinion these days, some yep. sports pieces um, through Fairfax Media, online on stuff.co.nz. And uh, sometimes they even end up in the hard copies of the various um, papers around the country. So I'm enjoying that. Okay. Good one. New Zealand accent of the week, dog owner Takapuna. Well, they're going to be on leads, um, short leads, not expendable ones like mine are on today. So you have them under control the whole time. This is the Weekend Variety Ones on Radio Live. The Marsden Fund is an excellent sort of thing that divvies out some cash for research. Research that is essentially, well, not necessarily has a goal in mind. It's just... How does stuff work? Let's go find out. Blue sky research or basic research as it's sometimes called. One of the recipients of a few hundred thousand dollars is Dr. Mikkel Anderson, who's doing something really at the spooky edge of physics, or at least it is for the layperson. I think it was Richard Feynman who said, if you think you understand quantum physics, you don't. Maybe that's true. I'll ask the recipient of the Marston Grant, who's doing some weird things with quantum entanglement, Dr. Michael Anderson from Otago University. Thanks for being with us and congratulations. Thank you very much. Do you agree with Richard Feynman? Sorry? 
Do you agree with Richard Feynman? Yes, 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 indeed. So there are, of course, in physics, there are certain fundamental principles that we accept because we have observed that's the way the world works. But those cannot be understood. They come from observation. Then in terms of those principles that we call the fundamental laws of physics, you can understand every phenomena. But the basic principles you can't understand. Is it just the realm of the extremely small and the extremely cold? No. So in terms of quantum mechanics, that's valid at every scale. And also at the classical scale and at the large uh, scale. That's actually an amazing thing about quantum mechanics. This is the only scientific theory uh, where there's never been an observation in conflict with it. Yeah, it's got a pretty good track record of being probably right. Yes, and it's it's not because people haven't tried. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, for the layperson, can you describe this quantum entanglement weirdness? It really is spooky, is it not? Uh, It's not spooky. If you accept those principles by which the world works, then it's a natural consequence. But to Einstein, it sounded spooky because he would have liked to add a principle to those called locality that turned out not to be right when it was tested in uh, experiments. So basically what quantum mechanics enables you to do is you sit uh, in the other end of the country and I sit here. We had uh, uh, a cup with a dice in each and the outcome of the eyes on the dice is completely random when we roll it. Mm -hmm. Then quantum mechanics allows for us to be able to set this up such that even though we roll the dice and it's completely random for each of us, then the sum will always come out to be, for example, seven. Such that if I roll my dice first, mm. I know what your dice is going to be. No, you don't. So that's, that's what uh, actually <laughs> is fine. If I have set them up entangled, then that's what's going to happen. Okay, so that's action at a distance, which shouldn't really happen according to Einstein. Yes, this is exactly what Einstein had a problem with. If I rolled my dice first, you rolled yours, say, two microseconds later, then Einstein would say, no, it shouldn't be possible for me to predict the outcome of yours because the information needs to travel no faster than the speed of light, and it will take this light longer than two microseconds to make it from me to you. In popular culture, Schrodinger's cat is very famous. It's that experiment about quantum physics, the thought experiment, um, that I suppose could actually happen. Is the cat alive or dead? It depends on whether you look at it. You complete the experiment by the observation, but uh, that cat in the box is both alive and dead at the same time, confounds our brains. It can't be true. What do you make of Schrodinger's cat? Okay, it doesn't take a conscious observer to make the cat either alive or dead. The box will make it automatically if it's a hot object. So in that sense, it's, it's not a person observing that makes it dead or alive, but it's the fact that the cat is in contact with a large hot box that will cause it to be either dead or alive. Okay, so when we're looking at the box containing Schrodinger's cat, it is actually alive or dead. It's not some sort of weird ghost. So you would have to put the cat in an empty universe somewhere and it has to be a world champion in holding its breath or something like that. Uh (laughs) Then you could make it both live and dead 
at the same time. But as soon as it interacts with something, and it doesn't have to be the observer, of course, you can't observe without interacting with it. Mm. So the observer will definitely cause this, but the also interaction with the box in which it's encaged would cause it to be either dead or alive. So in that sense, if we were to do our experiment with the dice, they would have to be transported in vacuum or, or something like that in order for, otherwise we would lose the entanglement as well. Okay. Now you're working with this entanglement stuff with, shall we say, an in inverted commas, warm stuff, because I thought this quantum entanglement weirdness was very much the realm of the extremely isolated or extremely cold. What are you yes. doing, basically? Yes, so isolation is hardness to just try to explain. And most people will also say that what we do is still cold. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but what we are trying to do is that usually heating is uh, considered detrimental to preserving quantum entanglement. And we've come up with an idea of how you could maybe use heating in order to actually generate it. That would make the generation process much more robust than other ways of generating it that we have today. All right, describe your experiment. You, you're walking through the door. You've got to get the engineering department to make something, is, is, don't you? What are you, what are you doing? Oh, well, the students make it here. Oh, okay. <laughs> they build everything. What we use is basically the experiment takes place inside a vacuum chamber. It's got to be isolated. Mm -hmm. And then we use what is called uh, optical tweezers. So this was actually the inventor of optical tweezers was awarded the Nobel Prize this year. That's right. So uh, that I'm very happy about. <laughs> uh, but we use optical tweezers, which is basically the fact that you can use laser beams to hold objects with. Mm -hmm. uh, and what we hold are two atoms. So we have two laser beams that we put exactly one atom in each. What atom of what? So th these are rubidium atoms. Oh, okay. That's uh, just uh, because that's where the lasers you need for the experiments are cheapest. Okay. Uh, so we hold two rubidium atoms. We prepare them uh, in a particular way. They need to be cold in order to be held by the optical tweezers, but hot compared to what usually is considered the real quantum regime. Then we, we can move the laser beam. So we move the two atoms uh, together so that they start bumping into each other. And that process uh, actually converts energy from their motion into their internal degree of freedom and uh, in the same process entangles, you can say, the electrons in the two different atoms. Okay. Right. So they've made a deal and yes. a uh, and there's, there's no getting away from that deal no matter how far away they are until no, no. you so disentangle. Then when you move them apart, again, they will remain entangled. And if I could move it all the way up to you, we could actually make a variation of uh, <laughs> the dice experiment. Right. Yes. That's when you can muck with my dice. Yes. Right. Yes. Good one. Is anyone else having a crack at this? Finding robust ways to generate entanglement is a big issue in physics. So actually entanglement has gone through a very, very interesting journey. In Initially, it was met with skepticism by Einstein, for example. Mm. Then in the 1980s, it was established as a fact. At the same time, people started to understand that it's actually a naturally occurring thing that's a part of a lot of everyday effects. Mm -hmm. And then people start uh, thinking about, can you actually use it for something? That's where a lot of research goes. Now, people have realized that if you can entangle, for example, atoms, then you can make them cooperate to perform certain tasks much, much more efficient than if uh, without it. So today, entanglement is seen as a resource 
but it's a fragile resource and it's difficult. The way it's generated today makes it, it, it kind of fragile and therefore because it's a resource a lot of people are thinking of different ways that you could generate it more robust. No one else, to the best of my knowledge, is trying the approach we are taking, but uh, we're not the only one who's thinking about how can you do this mm. in a much more robust way. Okay. But, when you say warm, how warm are you? That's actually the... still only something like about a thousandth of a degree above ab absolute zero. All oh, right. They're so it's toasty. So really? cold. But that, <laughs> that, that, that's because that's how cold atoms need to be before we can hold them with optical tweezers. Right, okay. Are you hoping to get warmer than that? That would already be a lot warmer than most experiments that uh, happen today. Really? Yes. Far out. That's the coldest place in the universe. Yes, sir. No, well, a lot of experiment happens in, say, the nano-Kelvin, so a billionth of a degree above absolute zero. Right. But in the universe, there's nothing out there there's as quite else, as cold uh, there. So there's nothing naturally occurring uh, that's... Uh, in, in the that's universe that as we know it, that you can't get that cold. Only if you do things deliberately, <laughs> like we do, you yeah. can get that cold, yes. It, it, there's nothing naturally occurring in the universe that's that cold. Far out. All right, a lot of quantum stuff is adopted by spooky folk, like Deepak Chopra, that say we're all connected and our consciousnesses are uh, all, oh, I don't know, woo words, really, because of quantum this and quantum that. What do you make of quantum abuse like that? So are you allowed to say bullshit on the radio? I think you say it again, if you like. <laughs> so I think it's bullshit, yes. Okay, good one. Uh, a serious physicist, David Deutsch, he reckons quantum effects are little windows into other universes. Do you think he could be right, or does it even matter? I would actually go with the second one. Uh, it's okay to think about what's behind the principles that we now take as our basic principles, but before you come up with something more fundamental from which you can explain the present principles, then it doesn't really matter. Shut up and calculate, as they say. <laughs> yeah, some say that. Probably my students will say I say it. <laughs> hey, look, congratulations. Yes, it, thank you very much. It really is a yes. fascinating area of the universe and physics yes. and amazing that you're going to uh, have some of this stuff happening in captivity. Yes. Good for you. Dr. Michael Anderson, University of Otago, thanks for explaining. Thank you. This is the Weekend Variety Ones on Radio Live. I hope you enjoyed Captain Quantum explaining some very deep, weird physics stuff. Another person who does this really, really well is the PBS Space Time Cat. His name's Matt O'Dowd. Um, just a little cut of what he does. He's very funny. Imagine the Rindler Observer has a particle detector. Every time an unruh particle hits the detector, it would click. And the inertial observer would agree that it clicked, but they wouldn't see the particle that triggered it. And this is actually the case. It's been worked out with math and everything. The proof uses something called an Unruh DeWitt detector. This is a fancy name for a particle in a box. He's very funny. Matt O'Dowd, check him out on PBS Science. It was one of the podcasts, I think, that uh, Hugh Sunday on a previous media stick pointed out to us. I've been binging on it. So just sharing because I think he's groovy. It's pretty heavy physics stuff, but somehow... 
I still enjoy listening to him, even though I only understand about 1% of what he's going on about. It makes me want to learn more, which is a good thing. Skeptical Thoughts with Susie Wiles will be after news, sport and weather at 9 o'clock, which is pretty much almost now. But is there really a now in physics?